blood covenant. It's very important to understand the traditional steps that were involved in creating a blood covenant so that we get the full understanding of the blood covenant that Jesus cut for us in the new covenant. And we need to start with an understanding of the ceremony involved. Now, Jesus talks many times to the disciples about things that they immediately recognised and would remember from their childhoods. But with 2,000 years having passed... Sometimes those things are lost on us living in this of modern day and age. And it's very important to actually look at, well, what is a blood covenant? What does it mean? Because I think when we really get that revelation of what it is, it will change our walk forever with the Lord because... It's so incredibly important that we know what Jesus has done for us. It's so amazing. So just going back to talk about the actual blood covenant that people would do, human beings would do, and then comparing it to what Jesus has done. And if you look back in history... Google Blood Covenant, um, you'll find that the term cutting the covenant actually comes from a Hebrew word, berith, and the Greek equivalent is diatheke, which means to you're making a covenant by cutting to make the blood flow. And it's usually referred to as cutting the covenant and it's performed in a sacred ceremony because of the tremendous significance of the event. Because the blood covenant was the most binding covenant any two people or, or even groups of people um, could enter into. And once committed to the covenant, the only way out of it was by death of one or both of the covenant makers. So it's something that was never entered into lightly. And... There were traditional steps in making a blood covenant that people would follow. And that's very interesting when you do the history and look at what those were. There are steps that are normally involved in cutting the covenant. And they include exchanging coats. Um... And why would they do that? Well, 
The coat signified the identity, the authority of the person. I mean, I suppose in, you know, going back to the time of Jesus and even before that, you know, back into the Old Testament, Moses and Abraham, they probably didn't wear coats like we would think of them now in modern times. They would wear capes um, and they would have capes around them, draped around them and they would vary in the types of fabric that was used to make the cape and they could go right up to the regal capes that kings wore. So there was a variation, but they signified the authority of that person who was entering the covenant. So the coats, the robes are exchanged with each person who's involved in this ceremony. And what does that exchange basically say? Well, it's saying that Everything they wear, everything they represented now belongs to the other person. All their possessions, all that they are, their very self, they're giving to each other. They're no longer their own. They now belong to one another. There was also the exchange of weapon belts. And on those belts, they would have things like a bow, or a knife, or a sword, or, or any other weapon. And that exchange signified that all their strength now belong to the other person. You know, their enemies are now, you know, my enemies. My enemies are now their enemies. And your friends are now my friends. My friends are your friends, that sort of thing. And they would say that they would serve the other person um, if they ever needed them. And the other person would serve them if they ever needed them. And then there was also the exchange of vows in the walk of blood. And what would then happen is an animal would be sacrificed by splitting it down the backbone and it's usually a bull, a goat, a lamb. And the halves are laid open with a pool of blood between them. And it sounds quite gruesome. And this is what they did with the Blood Covenant. It, it was gruesome. There was a lot of blood. Um, and in this case, it's animals. And so... The person walks in a figure of eight shape between the halves and they meet in the middle of the pool of blood. And the figure eight is significant because that represents infinity or a never-ending relationship. So if it's two people, they meet face-to-face in this situation and they 
there pronounced the blessings and the curses of the covenant. The curses are usually pronounced against anyone who would break the covenant. And it went something like, the one who breaks this covenant will die just like this animal has died. That was one of the things he would say. And a pledge was given that went along the lines of, just as this animal gave its life, so will I give my life for yours, if necessary. So, the accounting of all belongings um, for exchange, if and when needed, is done. And then, while standing in the blood, they give... um, an accounting, if you like, of all their possessions and they declare that they become available to the covenant partner if they ever have need of them. Then there's the exchange of names. Each participant takes the other's name to himself. So the person's name represents his individuality and this exchange of names demonstrates a death to being an individual and because remember the covenant is the union of two individuals or of two groups in covenant you're no longer concerned with only yourself your concern now includes your blood covenant brother and we've heard of blood brothers and so your blood covenant brother you now care for your blood brother the same as you care for yourself because the two of you are now one and when the names are exchanged the primary sound of each person's name is incorporated within the other person's name what I mean by that is, say, um, somebody named Ken Jones was making a covenant with Bill Brown. So the new names would be Ken Brown Jones and Bill Jones Brown. So the names were exchanged and then there was this exchange of blood in the cutting of the covenant. So... Again, while standing in the blood, face to face, a knife is used to make an incision in either the palms or the wrists of each participant. And it was done there to let the blood flow freely. And the Bible teaches us that life is in the blood. And so the two participants, they now either shake hands or... They put their bleeding wrists together so that their blood intermingles. And this act actually symbolises the two bloods or the two lives that have now been joined into one blood or one life. In some cultures, um, the blood from both people 
is <laughs> drizzled into a cup of wine and then stirred together and the two people involved drink from the common cup so that each other's blood enters into the other and that mingling of blood creates this new union of oneness and is why this is called a blood covenant it's the strong bond of relationship and this is also the way not with absolutely the same steps as what I've just described but this blood covenant is the way that God has chosen to interact with all of humanity and when we actually look at the precise details of the blood covenant that we have with Jesus Christ if we are born again of the spirit of God It's absolutely incredible if you've never heard this before. So, there's also the mark of the covenant. And while the two people are still in this position and the blood's dripping from the wounds, They would put some dark substance like charcoal, something like that. It would be rubbed into the wound on each hand or wrist so that when the wound was healed, a dark scar would be clearly visible to everyone who saw it. And by doing this everywhere these blood covenant partners went, they would clearly be identified as being in covenant with someone else. And the exchange is also signified by the covenant meal, which usually consisted of bread and wine, And that also showed that the covenant partners had become one. And they would break a loaf of bread and each place a piece of that bread into their covenant partner's mouth. And then when they do that, they're demonstrating that a part of... Each of them has gone into the other and then they drink the wine from a common cup indicating that our blood has gone into uh, each other, the person's blood has been mingled with the other person and since the life is in the blood they're demonstrating that they've taken each other's lives into themselves. And at the end of the blood covenant ceremony the two covenant heads are now called friends and there's now been a new relationship formed and that is a union called covenant and this relationship with this union is now governed by an attitude towards each other called loving kindness from the Hebrew word used to express this relationship 
called hest. And the Greek word for this is agape. And this is simply... It's like a love relationship that says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will always do what is best for you, even if it's to my own heart. And the persons are now in union with one another and what we'd call, what we've heard and know about in the days we live in, blood brothers. So the word friend has been greatly watered down when we think of it today. People call other people their friends who they hardly know, especially in social media. Um, People make friends and the actual definition of the word is far more involved, is far more depth to it than a lot of people realise today. If we go back to the time of Jesus in the early church, the word friend actually referred to a blood covenant partner. Not just somebody that you sort of went about with, you know. (laughs) It had real significance and... We remember that Jesus, you know, sticks closer than a brother and he's our friend and the word there, the connotations are so much deeper than what we miss today when we use the word friend. So we can see that the actual steps involved in making a blood covenant cause, you know, your eyes to be opened to what Jesus did and said to make the new covenant in his blood. And he knew what a blood covenant was. And a lot of us today probably don't have a clue. Um, So... That gives us an idea of the significance of making a covenant and a blood covenant with another person. And the disciples would have known what that meant. And when we think of what Jesus did to make the new covenant in his blood so that we can enter into an everlasting relationship with God in union with him through the blood covenant that Jesus has made available through what he's done for us. I mean, when we truly understand what Jesus did for us in establishing the new covenant, should transform our walk with him, our life. And he became our representative. And that has deep meaning too that's been lost in our day. 
And the role of the representative is critical to understanding our covenant with God. So when we move on to more biblical things um, and also spiritual things, it's important that we understand the role of the representative because it's essential when a covenant is entered into between more than two people because covenants can be entered into by individuals or by groups of people like families, tribes, clans in Scotland. So when a group of people are prepared to enter into a blood covenant with another group, they'll select a man from among them to represent them in the covenant making. And this person becomes a substitute for the entire group. And that type of covenant making between groups was very common in Bible days. It was mostly for protection. Like when a weaker group entered covenant with a stronger group, the stronger group was bound by covenant to protect the weaker group. And so the representative is one who stands in the place of another as a substitute. And they're authorised to act or speak on behalf of the others. But this person must be enough like the others in the group to serve as an example or a type of those group members. You see where I'm going with this. So this person must know the needs and the desires of those he represents and, and he speaks uh, as and for them to the other party of the covenant. So the representative had to be of the same blood as the family or group he was representing and was known as the guarantor of the covenant. It was his job to see that all the promises and terms of the covenant were kept. And if we go to Hebrews 7 verse 22, it says there, so much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. So it tells us there about Jesus being our representative. And when the representative enters into a blood covenant with another, the people he represents are said to be in him, or they are in the person doing the representing, because he is acting on their behalf as a substitute for them. The substitute has perfectly identified with the group he represents. So 
the group and the guarantor are acting and speaking as one in the covenant making process. So when the two tribes, the two clans, whatever, two families come together to make a blood covenant between them, they both they both send their representatives and when the covenant ceremony is completed the two tribes are now in union with each other and are seen as one to the rest of the world. So that is incredible because Jesus is our representative man. He was fully human, fully God. He was fully human. Very, very, very important that that was the case to be our representative. He had to be able to represent us. And so the Father sent Jesus into the world. And he didn't come here with all of his godly rights and privileges. Um, He came here as a human being, a baby, born the way we are born and grew up the way we grew up. And he lived a life here experiencing the things that we experience as a human being. And it's so incredible. I mean, it says in John 3.16, very famous scripture, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever, that means whoever, believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So the Bible states that Jesus was, in fact, the words, the words of the Father. John 1, verses 1 to 5, say, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So Jesus, God's word, became human and lived as a man. It tells us in John 1 verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Mary was the human mother 
and God was the supernatural Father. Tells us that Luke 1, verses 26 to 38. If you read that, it's the account of the angel Gabriel visiting Mary and telling her that she'll have a child from God, even though she was a virgin. So it was God's eternal plan from the beginning to be able to have an intimate relationship, fellowship with his created man and women and have mankind be able to enjoy all the glorious things that God could provide because of that loving relationship between God and man. But we know, or we should, because of the rebellion of Adam and Eve, sin entered the world and destroyed that intimate loving relationship because God, apart from being a God of love, we also have to remember that in his perfect state of holiness, he is a holy God. He cannot have fellowship with sin. So in order to fix this situation, God had to have a way to restore mankind to a state or a condition where this intimate fellowship could be re-established. And his solution to the problem was finding a human being that was as holy as God himself and one without sin that could represent the human family, mankind, as a covenant representative and then enter into covenant relationship with the Father. Well, clearly, after Adam and Eve, there was no human being that was born that could do that. So, God sent Jesus and he became that man. And that's why he talks about himself as the son of man a lot in the scriptures. Yes, we know he's the only begotten son of God. But when Jesus talks about the son of man, he's referring to that human side of his nature because he is completely human. And he has now gone to be with the Father. He is in heaven. He's seated in heavenly places, far above all principalities, powers, all that stuff. He's far above it. And he's seated there. And he is all-powerful. He is God. He is still still a human being but he is God in the flesh it's absolutely incredible it is mind-blowing the fact that God walked this earth contained within a body like we're contained in at the moment and 
never sinned, was absolutely perfect, holy, and then took our punishment upon himself and entered in as our representative to a blood covenant with God on our behalf because that's what it's about to allow us to come back in to fellowship with God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ it's absolutely incredible and I wonder if sometimes people don't always get this it's so astounding that it should change your life if you've never really heard of this before it's not taught about that much that I've heard of over the years anyway maybe just where I went to but it's so fundamental to know who you are in Christ that's why we're always talking about that because it's so important if you do not know that you are in Christ because of this blood covenant then you won't know who you are in Christ and the authority that you've been given by Jesus himself over the enemy Luke ten nineteen, for example but also things like we can decree and God hears what we say and when it's lined up with his word and his will he watches over it to perform it he will send angels out to bring it to pass and so all these things are connected and when we get a revelation in our spirit of who we are in Christ what Jesus has done for us and what the Father has accepted and Jesus knew that he'd done it it was done when he said it is finished all these things are not just throwaway lines to fill the Bible every word is considered every word's decided and they're all relevant and when we study God's word these things are made available to us revelation from the spirit of God so I'll leave it there and in the next podcast I'll talk about what Jesus has done being our substitute and what the exchange call it the great exchange what has been exchanged what has Jesus actually given to us and what did he take upon himself that great exchange as our representative fully human so he um was acceptable to God because he was holy as well. He was the only one who could have done this for us. Nobody else in the universe could have done this for us if Jesus had not done it. He was the only one 
no good person, no, I'm sorry, but your your Gandhis, your Buddhas, your Confucius, your whoever you want to name, they could not have done it because they were sinful. If they were born and they were human beings, they were sinful. Jesus Christ never sinned. He was sinless, yet he was 100% human. Absolutely incredible. So I hope this um, opened your eyes if you've not heard of this um, in such great detail before. And the next podcast will explain what that looks like for us as Christians today. Thank you.